Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who gather each week to be an inquiry and dialogue on living the spiritual life. We're all on the spiritual path, growing in our understanding of ourselves and others, and moving from being complainers to being empowered to simply being. We know that we can't change the world unless we change ourselves. Welcome to the Forum. Welcome everyone to the Spiritual Forum. So glad you're here. I just have a couple short announcements. I want to remind you all that I'm on YouTube now, and that's another place where you can find the Spiritual Forum. And please share this podcast with friends and family. We want to get this voice out into the world. And if you do feel like you receive anything from this, I want to encourage you to add a donation, small or large, to help support this ministry, this mission. And what it really here, the spiritual form is about is to bring really fabulous people to you all so that people who've had all sorts of different experiences with the divine. And that's what I love about this podcast is that it's, it's not narrow. It's very, very wide. And it's really a podcast that is a message of hope and awakening and inspiration. And today we have a fabulous guest, and I'm so excited to introduce him. His name is Gregory David Roberts, also known as GDR, and he's best known for the novel Shantaram, which sold over 7 million copies. He has a fascinating story, having turned his life around from being Australia's most wanted man for 10 years as a fugitive on the run in India and Europe, to international best-selling artist, author, and musician. His healing story started after he was extradited back to Australia and sent to solitary confinement as a punishment for escaping. After a year in solitary, he recognized that he was ultimately responsible for his situation and started to see the common humanity in others, including the prison guards. There's a lot more to learn about Greg's life, and I'm going to let him fill in the blanks. But I just want to also let everyone know that more recently... Roberts went off-grid in 2014 for six years to look after his ill parents. And during this time, he began a practice of blowing the conch, which was given to him by his spiritual teacher. And he's dedicated himself to a devoted life, which is described in his recently published book, The Spiritual Life. So we'll be talking about that again today. Welcome, Greg. God bless. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you. I I have to say I have never met anybody who expresses their devotion through blowing the conch. And I just found that it was so interesting and it was so um humbling and very touching and very inspiring. So I look forward to hearing about that part of your story. But I I have to ask you to fill in some of the blanks of your your story about the fugitive and solitary confinement and, and all of that. Can, can you share some of that with us? Uh, I guess I can. Um, yeah. I, not that there's anything in there that's um, really beneficial for other people because it's kind of a litany of mistakes until I woke up. Well, that's, realized... what, that's what the spiritual path is about though, right? Don't, don't we all do that? Well, um, I'm, I don't know that the spiritual path is about that necessarily, but I think the spiritual path is about overcoming that and yeah. moving in a, in a more positive direction. For sure. Yes. And, and even though I think everyone is spiritual and everyone's on the spiritual path, 
but um, you can be on the spiritual path and not know it. Absolutely. Um, and do everything in your power to um, prevent yourself from expressing and living a spiritual life and, be, and feeling spiritually connected. Uh, and I was like that for a long time. And the bottom line is um, through flaws in my character, weaknesses in my character, a kind of gutlessness really at the heart of what I really was and as a human being in not accepting responsibility and having a tendency to run away if thing, things got really tough. Um, I found myself um, you know, addicted to heroin and uh, committed a string of stupid robberies with a toy pistol and was sentenced to prison um, justifiably. I was a menace to society. I put fear into people. Um, they were heinous acts and I deeply regret them. To this day, I, I still remember every single day the harm that I've done in my life. And um, that harm resulted in prison. I was still in the mindset that, um, you know, if it's hard, run away. I escaped from the prison after two and a half years of a 10-year sentence and uh, spent 10 years on the run as a fugitive, was eventually recaptured. And uh, as a punishment for the, the escape, was put into solitary for two years. And it, it was the best thing that ever happened to me um, externally if you know what I mean, in terms of a, a life shakeup. Um, sometimes, you know, the universe or God or whatever it is taps you on the shoulder and says, you know what, you might want to change the direction you're in. <laughs> and then you get a shove from behind. And if you ignore that, sooner or later, you get a big whack on the head with a lump of two by four uh, that is going to tell you, how, and are you awake now? <laughs> Can you see now? Uh, Can you get it now? And uh, solitary was a gift for me. Of course, it's hard, but it was a gift because um, in within that experience of two years, um, I underwent some fundamental changes in myself, accepted responsibility for the harm I'd done, for uh, the mistakes I'd made, and also, and you know, you, and stop blaming um, people, society, your family, your whatever it is, conditioning, you know, the world you live in, and realize that the harm that you've done and the and the wrong directions you've taken always come back to you. And, and when you accept responsibility, that's the first step in shaping your destiny in a more positive direction. So after I came out of solitary and went back into the mainstream, I started teaching uh, literacy classes to um, life sentence prisoners who could not read and write. And for me, the, the thought that you're spending the whole of your life in a prison or most of it, and there's a library there full of books with tremendous stories and fascinating adventures. And you can't read them. Um, it might as well be a, a room filled with stones um, and so on. That to me is a core tragedy within the prison experience because illiteracy and difficulty uh, with literacy is prevalent. Um, it's amazing how many prisoners are suffering from literacy issues. And this is a big part of it. When I repurposed myself and accepted responsibility and thought, this is my life, I can't wait for my life to begin when prison finishes. This is my, I could slip in the shower and die tomorrow. I, I need, this is my life. I can't mm -hmm. wait for it to begin. So I had to do something. And when I repurposed my life in teaching, the time of the last four years went so quickly and um, was so positive. And I gained so much from it where before I'd really been bashing my head against a system. I gained so much from it. And when I left, um, I shook hands with prison officers, shook hands with prisoners, and all of them said, um, we'll never see you again. And this was a reflection of the recidivism rate in uh, Australia, which is you know, far too high. We all know it and everyone recognizes and there are steps being taken to try to reduce recidivism. But that was a, a heartfelt statement from prisoners and prison officers saying, 
you're not going to come back. And they're, they're also saying, stay on this path that you're on because you won't come back if you do. And so after that, um, my life sort of changed. I, I focused on the writing that I've been doing my whole life and focused for five years on writing um, Chantra and completing it. I've been working on it for about eight years before that. And I finally sat down and completed the book, um, um, introduced the book to the world, um, a 900-page novel, and uh, thinking, well, maybe a few people will read this. And as it turns out, a lot of people wrote to me, and it really confirmed saying the book changed my life or it inspired me or it helped me in some way. It got me through a really tough time. Or this brought us together. We're, we're getting married. We'd like to invite you to the wedding. <laughs> And so on a lot of these things where the book brought two people together and so forth. And these are not things you can even think about when you're writing it. You're in the passionate flow of your art. And you want to just produce the best art that you can. You don't hope that you're going to have this sort of effect on people. But it did happen. And I'm eternally grateful for the effect and for the responses that I get from readers. So that's sort of a little recap to bring you up to the publishing stage. Yeah, well, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing all that. There's a few questions that I have. Um, but first, I want to I want to notice that you said that you repurposed your life to teaching the other inmates, and that that time went by really quickly from there. So I I think that really ties into when we're in service to others. It, it's like timing becomes like divine timing. There's something very different that happens when we are in service to others. Is that your experience? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm not even sure I'd use the word service, but I okay. understand what you mean by okay. it. I do understand. Um, and I think it's sort of as a, you know, you can perform a service and not be, um, you know, intentionally motivated in okay. a spiritual way. And you're performing the service well and doing the thing and then you say bye and leave. And we're, we're grateful for that service if it is performed by someone. But it's sort of a little bit more than service. It's a sense of devotion that you you first you can find something that you can devote yourself to and that it is meaningful. And, um, you know, we ask ourselves, what's the meaning of life? It's, in my experience, it's purpose that gives life meaning. And a life without purpose is temporarily meaningless until it is repurposed. And as soon as someone who's in that throw of depression, uh, finds them the strength within themselves and the, and the companionship, friends, and uh, good advice to get into a purposeful life. They find something and say, I really want to do this and get into it. That sense of purpose is the thing that, that shapes everything else about you and your reactions to other people, your positivity when you wake up in the day, the positive thoughts you have when you go to sleep because you know the next day you're going to do more of that very important purpose that you've associated yourself with and so on. So it, it's sort of a little bigger than purpose. It's it's forming an intention that this thing that you're doing is a good in itself, but it's the right thing to do um, in, a, in a wider sense, in a spiritual sense. And if you keep on this kind of path, you'll overcome those weaknesses and difficulties that within yourself that propelled you to compulsive behaviors and doing negative things. So it's, it's sort of even, it's yes, it is service, but it's more than that in a sense. So you call it, you call it seva, is that right, or is that is seva something else? Say that again. You can't. Sorry. Seva, S E V A. Oh, to do seva, yes, um, exactly seva. Um, you know, some humbling service to others, and that's the difference between seva, the doing doing seva, and becoming a bhakt in a temple. These two Indian words, people can come to a temple and perform seva. They will come and clean something, cook something give respect and go. 
And this is the performance of Seva. When you take it to another level and you're actually serving not just the temple, but you're serving the teacher personally, it's taken to another level because the teacher is, has met usually thousands and thousands of people. They're, they have thousands of different um, connections to people, spiritual, physical, in their mind, in their heart the whole time. And the people around that teacher need to be deeply respectful. They need to understand what's happening and to be deeply respectful and to take it to another level. So the person doing service may come into the temple, get a blessing and go. The person who's taken that after a lot of service, who's taken it to another level, so to speak, will sit and receive wisdom from the teacher. Mm-hmm. It's at a different level and so on. You've, you've gone through the service part of it to where you're now going to receive, where that comes back. The service has helped you in humility, in humbling yourself, in getting yourself in, in a real perspective to the teacher, to the temple, to the other people around you who are coming there in good faith. But then beyond that, the reward that comes is the, the darshan, the teaching, the wisdom from your teacher, which is that extra level that takes it into devotion. When you become devoted to the teacher in the sense that you'll do everything in your, in, within your personal power to help the teacher um, function in this world and so on, it goes beyond helping the temple service to helping the mission of that particular teacher. Okay, um, so I'm trying to figure out where to go with this because there's so many ways I can go. I just want to recap the idea of, of purpose and meaning because what you're saying is that for all the people who are saying, "Oh, life has no meaning," or "I'm, I'm I have no, my life has no anything," we create our meaning by establishing ourselves in a purposeful life. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. So we all have that ability. We all have that ability. There's I'm nobody sure should, we, yeah, needs to suffer from a meaningless life. Indeed. We are all way stronger than we know, um, all of us. We, we carry within us the strength of our ancestors. And our earliest ancestors not only gave us the virtues that we have and that we recognize through their, you know, think of it, the, the first of our humankind who w- were um, entering this world and becoming a part of it. And in a new way, with an opposable thumb, and a highly developed, high-functioning brain. They were, but they had no sharp claws. They had no long teeth. They couldn't outrun the animals. They couldn't outclimb them, and so on. How did they survive? And if our ancestors were highly competitive with one another, we wouldn't be here. They were magnificently cooperative. They could cooperate to such an extent that no creature on this planet can stand against us when we stand united. And here we are with no sharp teeth, no claws, whatever, but we love one another, we have guts, we're very courageous, and we care for one another. And this caring and sharing and love that our first ancestors experienced that allowed them to exist in this world and not only exist, but to um, encounter it fearlessly, that they were brave and strong and they knew how to survive, that's been passed to us. And we forget how strong we are because we're not really in contact with that early part the um, long, early history of us. We're detached because we think, or many of us think that the uh, history of the human species has always been in a village or a town or whatever. And that's only 10% of our history, 25,000 years of what we would call civilization or domestication. For 250,000 years, at least before that, we were gatherer hunters and living in clans and traveling and the planet provided our nourishment 
and we didn't work for a living, so to speak. It was a very, very different world. And if we um, reconnect with that part of who we are, that ancient part that's very deep, 250,000 years, you can't wipe that out in 25,000 years of ruthless competition. The 250,000 years of passionate cooperation and guts and courage gave in us a thirst, a, a lust for justice, for fairness, and so on, that is nowhere expressed in the domesticated world we live in. It's been unjust from the beginning, and it's still unjust. Why do we still want it? If for 25,000 years the world has been unjust, why do we still want it? Because for 250,000 years that was built deep into us, deep. So they gave us our virtues, they gave us our guts. Reconnect with your ancestors and remember, we are so strong. We are so powerful, particularly when we stand together. <laughs> so you, so are you, do you think that um, what our survival really was based on was our care for each other? I mean, that's really the first time I've heard that. I've heard of cooperation and all that, but I've never heard the word care. Like at oh, the core yes. of us as humans, it's our care that allowed us to survive and thrive. Of course, it's fundamental to our existence um, because, well, the, the trade-off between the big head with a big brain and so on, the trade-off is that there is a high risk of death in childbirth of the baby and the mother. And it, it, the head is exactly at the size that it can be to still pass through a birth canal. If, any, if the, the baby stays any longer in the womb too long, it can't pass through the birth canal. So other animals gestate for much longer. Monkeys, horses, all sorts of animals gestate for a very long period. When they're born, within hours, they can stand, move, hold on with a very strong grip to the mother monkey or whatever, the, the, and hang on and go through the trees and so on, within hours. And ours, our humans, this trade-off with the big brain means that we're born in a sense, not quite cooked, and we are very, very vulnerable. Our babies are very, very vulnerable compared to the young of, or any other species that, that we interact with. So it meant that if we don't care very much and share that caring and love each other, we're not going to make it. And we did make it. So we made it because we care, we share. We didn't just walk away from the babies that were born. They were so vulnerable, but they survived. Why? because we cared so much and we shared so much and we loved each other so much. And that's the wellspring of our humanity. When you hear someone say something horrible happened and they say, oh, that's just human nature. No, 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 no. Yeah. That's human nature. Our human nature was formed in that first 250,000 years as gatherer hunters. And when you dig and research through that period, you don't find any massacres. When you look at the art what does the art show? Human beings throwing spears at animals. And when we domesticated ourselves, all of the art is the art of war. It's human beings throwing spears at human beings. And anywhere you dig, since we domesticated ourselves, you'll find a massacre, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So that early period was not like that. We can go into it more deeply if you want to. It's about the role of the female in that society. Why were all the gods female? There aren't any male gods that we found from the ancient past and so on. We've found plenty of female gods and god figures, but no male gods in that ancient past. We can talk about other aspects of, you know, the, the, the importance of the birth of females because of high infant mortality rates. So when a 
girl is born, it's a celebration. A clan will continue. <laughs> and if we don't have girls, we've got to go and get some from the next <laughs> clan and, and deal with those guys who it might be 300 kilometres away. We have to go and find them and, and ask them. When a boy is born, okay, good. But when a girl was born, it's a cause of celebration. Once we domesticated ourselves and had to defend the land that we stole from the planet to say, this is mine now, I own this <laughs> land, and we have to defend it with spears because other people go, how can it be yours? And you say, it's mine, like this spear is mine. You say, no, you made the spear, but the planet made you. How can, the, you, how, how can you own it? And so on. You get back, I own this, this is mine now. You need a preference for sons to hold those spears and keep people back from your flock or from your crop or whatever it is that you've domesticated yourself with and everything becomes the art of war, a preference for sons, a preference for patrimony, which never existed in the 250,000 years of our history <laughs> before that. Yeah, I, I, I completely get that. I also wonder if in the, in the Christian Judeo tradition, which is not those years, but, but there is a story of Eden. There is the story of a time when we were cooperative, I think. I don't think it goes into great detail, but I think it is, it is the, at least in the Bible, it is the way of connecting to a time when, when it wasn't so warlike, when it was, uh, 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 we were in cooperation with, with all of creation. What do you think about that? Uh, well, we know that uh, the texts we're talking about are some thousands of years old. We know that the oldest city in the world is, that still exists as a competition between Sana'a in Yemen and Damascus to be the oldest city, and they're around nine to 10,000. We know that 25,000 is kind of maybe 30 is the stretch from when we domesticated ourselves. So it's not too far to, to be um, a, a person who has um, domesticated themselves, a plant, they have flocks and so on, but not too far from that past because there still must have been many, many more gatherer hunters around than there are today. There must have been, they must have been, they must have been still everywhere until all of them were pushed to the margins as they are today. So that story of in Genesis of Eden contains within it this um, narrative of our past. It says we were as the other animals with the other animals and literally when they eat of the uh, the fruit the tree, of the tree yeah. of knowledge which is how to domesticate yourself how to plant crops and how to right. domesticate animals you are banned from that life which right, you had right. before which just provided everything for you now you and and it literally now says you gotta work. Text, now you are <laughs> that you will labor for your bread from this day forward so it's definitely referring i think to this ancient movement from gather a hunter to domesticated with some wistful look back, but uh, an understanding that that process cannot be reversed once it's started. And it's, you know, that once you start, once you learn this technology, like fire, once you learn how to make fire, everything changes from that point onwards and you will not and cannot go backwards to a pre-fire age and similarly. So that, that, uh, that is definitely there in the um, tradition. It's very interesting, Judeo-Christian. Um, I, I think there's probably, can I make a prediction for you? Sure. Seeing as you're a Christian, a practicing Christian, and I'm kind of a Christian. I'm not a Christian, but I, 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 I right. agree with you. I, I would say I'm probably a Christian too. Thank you. I love Jesus. Oh, well, yeah, I do I, too. I, oh man, I love him. <laughs> I would love to, you know, get on a motorcycle and go for a ride with Jesus out in yeah, the you, hills. You said he's your favorite thinker. Yes, by far, by far. Every time they tried to trick him, he responded with brilliant, brilliant. He was so smart. Yeah, so smart. In fact, 
you might even say to a point maybe too smart because his response to Pontius Pilate was probably not, it was very funny and clever. It was, it's you who call me that. Instead of saying, no, I've never said that. I am not that. I'm innocent. He, he didn't say that. Right. He, he already had accepted the faith that he knew was coming. Yes. He knew right. that it was, and he knew the people. He knew that when it was a choice between Barabbas and, and himself, he knew they'd choose Barabbas. He knew right. this would happen. Yes. And so on. And he didn't yet, speak in the trials because I think I think he knew what could he say that would change anything. It's I think that's why he was silent in the trials. It's like many t- and many people are many yeah. many people. They, you, do you have anything to say before we pass sentence? And many times they'll just shake their head and say no because they know it's inevitable. They're going to get whacked. They right. don't have the super rich lawyer. They don't have the you know bags of money to help them. But just getting back to the prediction, um, I, I think a time will come, and I'm not the first to say this, that when the Christian churches focus exclusively on the Gospels. Um, you know, the New Testament is this tiny in a Bible that's this big. <laughs> and the New Testament is this tiny, tiny thing of pages. But for me, it's everything that I want to hear, that I want to live by, and so on, and it has enough mystery in it to keep me entertained for the whole of my life so far. And I, I think there'll be a movement toward detaching from the Old Testament and saying, this book is part of our tradition and it's over here and we're not putting it in the rubbish bin, but our focus is on the life and example and words of Jesus. And for me, you can't go wrong. I completely <laughs> agree. I completely agree. And, you know, traditional churches have um, done a number on Jesus's teachings. They've, they've <laughs> kind of twisted them in so many ways. So, yes. but, you know, he, he, from my perspective, and I know people have different views of Jesus, but to me, he was the Christ man that he, 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 he imbued and held the spirit of God within him to such an extent that people thought he was God. And he also said, but this is something you all can have. This is, this is something for all of you. And, and, and I think his work was about love and unconditional love and forgiveness. And here is the path to that. And it's been twisted to something completely different that causes people to feel guilty and horrible and shame and all this stuff. But his message was so empowering. Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And revolutionary. Yes. In the, yes, in that context. Um, that one of the reasons why they crucified him, because his message was literally, uh, it, it, it didn't just overturn the tables of the moneylenders, it overturned the ideology that was prevalent at the time, which was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And suddenly someone comes along and says, turn the other cheek and so on. There is definitely some Eastern mysticism in his teaching that cannot have originated in, um, in, in the environment of, of the hothouse environment of an occupied Jerusalem with a massive army um, controlling it. And everyone sort of, sort of um, where do you stand on this? And we have to do this. We have to do this. This is wrong. And so on. Under that oppression. And you can see that at that time, but that message that it could not have fermented from that oppression and that difficulty and from the traditions they had. It's a new message and it came from somewhere. And that strikes me much of it as a kind of Eastern mysticism. The missing years of Jesus from 12 to 30 are fascinating. Yeah. Where did he go? Where did he go? There's also there's also the the theory or the hypothesis that he was an Essene, and that the Essenes uh, had a lot of these different teachings as part of their their group. And so, because if you if you look at it in the in the New Testament, he always talks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
And he doesn't mention the Essenes. And his teachings from the Dead Sea Scrolls, a lot of his teachings are very similar to what are in some of those Dead Sea Scrolls. And why aren't the Dead Sea Scrolls out in the world? I, I think it's I think they're being hidden. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> there's some truth. But yeah, we the missing years is a lot. There's a lot uh, that we could talk about there. I kind of want to get into your your going off the grid and what that was about and how you met your teacher and the the um, the blowing of the conch which I think is so foreign to so many people, but is your expression of devotion. And in your book, you talk about there's three necessary steps on the path, acknowledgement, surrender, and devotion. And so maybe you can talk about that, talk about your, uh, just talk about these years. I'll kind of let you you go with that. Sure. Um, one of the things that happens when you write a book and put it out there is that um, it's kind of a message in a bottle. And as people will pick it up, open that bottle, read the message and reach out and get in touch with you. So how I met my teacher is that he said to a friend of his, a mutual a person who knew me fairly well, and said, um, I've just finished this book and I want to meet the writer. Oh. Bring him here. Bring him to my temple. Oh, wow. And, um, so I went there and uh, met him and was fascinated by his dialogues because he doesn't refer to religious texts in any way he knows them all um, and can quote them if you want. But he doesn't refer to him, he only refers to his personal experience. This is what I know from my life. I'm not going to tell you a scripture. You can go and read it for yourself. I'm telling you what I know. And I was fascinated by that, the directness of his personal experience in his uh, exchange of wisdom. And then I got to see him perform his ceremonies. And it was the first time I'd seen a tantric at his level. Um, the difference between the spiritual and the occult is that um, the spiritual is knowing it. And the occult is putting it into practice and doing it. And so when you cross over, when you take your spiritual knowledge and you say, I'm going to try to open a connection with the divine, whatever that is, whatever it means, I'm going to try. And the medium I'm using is this, this, or this, a ceremony, a ritual, whatever, the blowing of the shell. So I watched him and I had never seen anyone so charismatic in, in, the, in their faith. My mother, when she came, I brought her to India with dad and she just cried from the beginning to the end. And, and, when, and when I said, are you okay? She said, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I've never seen anyone so passionately and charismatically devoted to what he's doing. And it was just beautiful to watch. And it's so sincere. And it's what gives him his and tremendous energy. Uh, he's indefatigably energetic and loud as anything. And he'll shout his head off and so on. He's terrific. But then in the ceremony, it's 100% commitment. So I saw this for the first time and I'd seen Many, many, many ceremonies, but they all, always had seemed to me a little feeble and not quite into that, that charismatic thing. I can say, as a, as a young Catholic going to church and going to a Catholic school, we had a visiting priest from Italy who came and performed the Mass as a special thing. He was a young Catholic priest from Italy. And it was the first time I ever felt the hair stand up on my arm, stand up on the back of my neck. I got goosebumps. He was so charismatic in what he was doing. And he, it, to him, it's voodoo. I'm turning this wine into blood. I'm ah. turning this bread into flesh. And I am doing this. And, so, and it was so charismatic, but I never saw that again in priests. It was mostly mumbling and, and gentle and kind and all very nice. My teacher impressed me with his dynamism and so on. And as he says, where is the benefit of your faith when you someone will come and say i've done this and i've done this and i've done this and they they, they look um half starved and 
and sort of you could poke them over with a straw and, and he'll look and say, come on, man, you, your faith should be filling you with this. Can I jump back to something you said um, before going on to, sure. you know, the, the parents and that? You, you talked about, because it's relevant in a way, you used the term unconditional love. I understand what people mean by that, but I don't think there's any such thing. I think all love is conditional. I think everything is conditional except faith. Faith is unconditional, and it is the only thing for me that I've ever found in my life that is unconditional. I, I think we can say that one person has unconditional love for another person or I have unconditional love for my child, but we all know life can take such dramatic turns that that love can turn into something that's not love. Mm-hmm. And so it's not conditional. If there was a condition, you just didn't know that there were conditions there. Mm-hmm. I, I think accepting that love is conditional and that we have to earn it, treasure it, and, uh, and you know, hold it closely to our hearts and guard it. And if we don't, it's a conditional thing and it'll fall apart. So we have to constant, constantly cherish that love and nourish it. If we think it's unconditional, eh, it's, it's okay. I don't enjoy anything. I have unconditional love. But faith is, is the unconditional thing for me. So, so just if I may return to that point that you were asking about, at, uh, I'd watched my teacher for about five years and uh, kept notebook after notebook of the things that he said, some funny, outrageous things, and some just so sharp and insightful that they were brilliant. And I kept notebooks and studied, asked my questions, was um, you know, probably the most annoying student he's ever had uh, because I literally had accumulated a lifetime of questions. But we, we really bonded. And when I told them, you know what, I've been, I've been coming for five years, I'm working here in India. And so it's pretty easy. I'm literally uh, two blocks away from the temple. So I've been coming and I'm, I'm loving it, but I may not be able to come for quite a while because my, my parents are not well. I'm going back to look after mum who has been diagnosed with cancer. And he said, okay, good, take this. And he gave me his mother's uh, shell that she had blown, his late mother. And she'd blown it for 20 years. And for the last 10 years of her life, she was blind. And she blew that shell every day, twice a day. So he gave it to me and said, take this with you when you go. And I'll see you after some years or whenever you come back. Uh, And I said, what am I going to do with it? And he said, because I had never considered that I would do what he does and blow a shell. Of course, I don't do it in the way that he does. And so mine is a baby version. It's okay. But I, I said, what am I going to do? And he said, put it on the window shelf as a decoration or blow it or do whatever you like. It's yours. So I took it. I went back and I thought, if I'm going to do this, if I'm really going to blow a shell as he does, not <laughs> the way that he does, but with his intensity and his experience and his knowledge, but innocently, like a child, stand in front of the divine and blow this and say, I hope you like this and do this. Then I need to clean myself up beforehand. And so in the process of looking after mum and dad, closing down all the things that I was doing before, being in that seclusion of saying, this is the most important thing now. Mum has six months to live. And it turned out to be two and a half years because the intense care and love, we just pumped love into mum. And, and she did the bucket list twice and all of this. So um, that time of, of cutting off from the rest of the world, I thought this is the right time to do this. So um, I went through various steps to try to prepare myself to be at least reasonably clean enough and worthy enough to start, and then took that big leap of faith, which for a skeptical mind like mine is not easy. It takes time to understand what you're doing and fully accept it to say, I acknowledge you. I don't know what you are, but I acknowledge you. I, I acknowledge that you exist, that you are the prime cause of all this, 
and the infinite creation machine with the infinite number of universes boiling in, into and out of existence, this infinite creation machine that you made it. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you are. I can't, can't imagine because I, don't, I can't even look at the sun for five minutes without going blind. So how could I possibly look at, at the God that made all of the suns and all of the universes and the entire creation machine? I don't, you know, so you go into it with with a humility and say, I don't know what you are, but I believe you're there. I accept, I acknowledge you, and it's beyond belief. I acknowledge it, and I'm going to offer you this. You are beyond wanting. You are beyond needing, obviously. You're God, but you created a universe in which this tiny little creature emerges, and it's aware, and it says, hello, and I want to offer you something. And gee, this tiny little creature has free will. so. I, I can freely offer this to you, even though you don't need it. So I offer it with my love and I blow my shell and use the absolute maximum of my energy and blow this out and get till you've got nothing left. And so on in exhilaration, whether God wants it or needs it or not, is sort of irrelevant. You're just offering it from your heart with no hope of return. And what does happen, in my experience, is that a connection opens, a spiritual connection. I'm not saying this is to God. I think there's a spiritual nature in this world that we live in that we can that we can connect with if we just um, tidy ourselves up and go humbly like a child, like a kid, and just say, "I'm offering you this." And I know it's silly, but I don't care. I'm free to do it. You gave me free will. You made a world in which I'm free, and I freely offer it because I love you. And then I did this and kept notes on it um, for the first six years. And after three years, I said to my soulmate. I think I should put these notes into a little book because I think there might be something important for other people from my little shabby personal experience. There might be something that other people could take. And my soulmate said, oh, yes, good idea. She said, great. And then at the end of that third year, I went, ah, I have to do another year. At the end of the fourth year, <laughs> no, it's not enough. I have to do another one and so on. So it was about fully five and a half years before I felt ready to put pen to paper and put this little book together, which um, maybe can provide something, some insight for other people it's by no means exhaustive it's a little book but there may be something that helps someone else as they take their steps on the spiritual path and i hope that that works for them yeah i love that it's it's not really about the conscious per se it's about the devotion and the offering and your your modality is the the conch or your chosen um vessel i guess is the conch but so if if any of us could offer ourselves in a way that we are moved to the divine and and there's something so beautiful in that i mean this it's like it's like like you said there's nothing in return i'm giving you what i have where you whether you want it or not i'm choosing to do this i mean, i think this is so missing in western um, religions, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's just so missing in our world, how we, how we can express our devotion to yes. what is under all of creation. You know, we do it in prayer, we meditate, we have different little rituals, we light candles, but, but this, here I am, here I am, Lord, here I am, God, here I am, creator of all that is, I, I can offer you this. It's so beautiful. And the way you describe though, each year, you go into each year of your conch and it's like, it's like, I mean, it's like, I don't know. It's so inspiring because you're just giving your all, all, your all, your all. And, and I can give more. And it's just, it, there's such a sweetness about it. 
Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> yeah, I just, I love it. I, 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 I think it's interesting. And you know, the conch, I hate to say this, but when I was growing up, my family had a conch shell. My parents, I think, brought it back Whoa. from a vacation. Yeah, but it, we didn't blow it like that. It was our dinner bell. <laughs> Oh, so we were we were out playing. We this is like in the '60s, and we were out playing. This is before there was a lot of authorized play and soccer and all that kind. Of, we didn't do that. We just went out into the woods and played. And then when we yes. heard the conch, we came home for dinner. Oh my gosh, that's so fantastic! I'm so glad to hear that. Amazing. And see, this is the intersection between the material world and the spiritual world. In the material world, that was a dinner bell. Right. In the, yes. In the <laughs> spiritual world, it is a conch, as they say in America, or a conch. And that sound from that shell is a sacred sound all over India. There's no doubt about it. It's connected to the sacred. Every single temple in India, and there's 100,000 of them, wow. has people blowing the shell everywhere and so on. So here it is. It's both a material event, where it's a dinner bell and nothing, nothing more than that. But at the very same time, if you're aware of both, it is a spiritual event and it has spiritual significance. So someone who knows the spiritual significance of the conch is going to hear that and go, oh, wow, that's a blessing. And so on, as um, well as a dinner bell. They're yeah. both things the it's both things at the same time, isn't it? And I think that thing that you were talking about before, it's what, um, you know, we have a famous expression from JFK, you know, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That's um, a good. That's a good imitation. <laughs> it's like you know, pretty weird, but um, the the thing is, and maybe that's appropriate in for a country. I'm not sure. I think <laughs> if your country can't do anything for you, move to another country. But uh, you know, if your country should do something for you, just as you do something <laughs> for the country. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> it is, and that's you know, and we can see that with the treatment of veterans. They already did something. For right. Right. And now they're not. They, the country's not doing for them in the way right. with the respect and so on and dignity. And the, the life choices and opportunities that are there for everyone else who didn't serve their country in the same way and so on. So what it is, in a sense, it's, um, you know, ask not what your God can do for you. Ask what you can do for your God. And it came to me when my teacher once, uh, I was sitting there, I met many, many people in the temple, just sitting there listening to him talk to the people he was meeting as he met me. I was one of them, too, originally. And then I'm sitting there taking notes. And people are coming in and there was one very, very learned scholar who quoted so much scripture to him to show I really know what I'm talking about. And so we listened and he was very patient. He was smoking hashish and he's sitting back smoking his chillin', listening to this and so on. And when it finished, the scholar said, so the, now you can see I, I've read all of these and I know all of these, but the little I don't know, you know, so please share your knowledge with me so I know more. And my teacher just uh, had a smoke and said, what did you give to God today? Oh. And that rang that bell for me. And they were like, wow, wow, this guy is just, he's read every sacred book, sacred book there is. And he was humbled in the sense that he had to say, I, I, I didn't do anything for God. I, and, you know, did you put a flower in front of a picture or anything? Did you go out and say, thank you for the sky? Did you give anything to God today? No, I didn't. And he said, see, this is the thing. Tell me what you about your relationship with the divine, what you give and what you get. Tell me about this. Please don't tell me about all the sacred texts because I've read them all and I know them backwards in five languages. So there's no, <laughs> no need for you to tell me this. Tell me what you, and that gave me this sense of 
Ask not what your God can do for you. The tantric thing is not to say, please give me this. Um, I want this or I need this. It's the tantric thing is to say, why the hell do I not have this? The tantric thing is to speak to God in a in to the divine, whatever that is, to speak to this thing in a very personal way, like a kid to their mother, and and stamp your foot and so forth. And it's, we, it's the tradition is, I give this to you, and if there's a problem in my life, I'll come directly and tell you there's a problem. How come? Why? What's going on? And so on, and have a deeply personal relationship in this way, um, and, and an emotional relationship, and this for me, it became a breakthrough. What can I offer? So now <laughs> I blow the shell. And if anyone can ask me the question, what did you give to God today? I could say, I went down to the ocean, stood in the sea and blew the shell till I had nothing left. So I gave something. <laughs> <I'm> okay. <laughs> Thank you. I've already given today. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. I, I so Even saying thank you for the sunrise or the sunset. Yeah. Oh, yes. I wake up, I wake up every morning. The first thing I say is, thank you, God, for my life. Thank you, Indeed. God, for my life. Yeah. It's Indeed. a very first thought that comes to my mind. And then it's I go It's a very Jamaican outside. thing. Very Jamaican. Oh, human. Very okay. often you'll ask someone, how are you feeling? What's going, how are you going? And they'll say, give thanks. I'm oh. giving thanks every day and so on. It's very, very common to give thanks uh, in Jamaica. One of the beautiful spiritual um, qualities of this lovely, lovely island nation. <laughs> yeah. Well, something's happened with our culture where it's all like, I mean, people are just sitting around with, you know, what's what's coming to me and why why is life so bad and all of that. And and you talked about in the beginning, you know, create your own purpose, repurpose your life and then give give to God. You know what? Give to God. I mean, our life is is a gift, but we can sit around and watch Netflix and do nothing or we can actually be in action giving back or giving to God. So indeed. And I think in a large, if I may say, on sure. a broad cultural perspective, our, our cultural artifacts, whether it was music, painting, um, uh, with, and so on, and of course, then it became cinema, uh, it focused on reinforcing the virtues. And so, um, you know, the good guy had a white hat, the bad guy had a black hat, and you could tell he was the bad guy because he mistreated ladies and elderly people, and he was cruel and brutal and, and so on. And the good guy was a decent guy because he had the virtues and so on. We, the, the, the culture extolled those virtues for everybody, and they still do in countries where a kind of cultural control, so to speak, is important because if you don't maintain it, people can lose it and there can be a massive riot and people get hurt, like in India. Uh -huh. So they fairly heavily control, they try to control those things that might be deliberately insightful or, or whatever um, and in the culture. We used to do the same thing. And then in the 60s and 70s, uh, um, the culture changed from reflecting the virtues in movies and TV and so on to reflecting rebellion in mm. the TV and the movies and so on. And the bad guy uh, worked his way all the way up to becoming the good guy. And now today, the bad guy is the good guy. The person who kills more people than anyone else in the movie is the good guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like, uh, I'll kill each other. <laughs> How did that happen? And so when we, when we extol, instead of over hundreds and hundreds of years living in an unjust, unfair world, we extol the virtues because the only way you could survive. We lost that. We, ex we, we extolled the virtues of rebellion. And now people are finding a crisis. Um, the old teachings, like 
sticks and stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me. Of course, names hurt you. But we said this as a way to say, don't let names hurt you. If someone's being violent to you, that's, that's a big thing. But what they call you, go past that. Keep going. This too shall pass. Rise above. We were passing these messages on. And then it, be, it, it became, but the people, many of the people became defenseless against this. Where at the same time, we have a disintegration of the family, and the family is the, the, the linchpin. Wherever you, you still have strong, intact families, you have good education results, you have good um, income results, and you have less um, stress um, and anxiety in the younger people. And the, the family is strong and intact and so on. And we knew that. But the, and the family started to disintegrate under economic pressure and social pressures. So all of these things have combined to create a kind of crisis of anxiety and stress and fear and self-doubt and many other things that's happening at the moment across the world with young people. And we social media is a part and many other things. We can see this is happening. And many, many young people are connecting to me and saying, I'm, I feel really anxious. And I, I look and I know that uh, the life they're leading is actually, if they can just see it through a different lens, the life they're leading is charmed, a wonderful, charmed life. It's filled with opportunities to do good for others and so on. But they just can't quite see that yet. And they're not fully self-empowered. So personal responsibility, self-empowerment, directing your free will in a positive direction so that you shape your destiny. This is so important, and it will address many of the other things that are underlying the anxiety and tensions that people face. Uh, a one coda on that that I'd just add is, if you're not anxious in this modern world, there's probably something wrong with you. <laughs> if you think that the best of all possible worlds, if you can't get any better, it's great like this, <laughs> there's probably something wrong with you. And if you feel anxious in a world like this, you, it's a normal reaction. This is normal. <laughs> Dealing with it is another issue, but feeling it, there's nothing wrong in feeling anxious in an anxious-making world. You're right. I mean, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of spiritual bypass that I I can get above this. I, you know, I'm all love and light. And yes, all this crazy stuff's going on, but it's not impacting me. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yes, of course. That's right. Yeah. So where do you think we're going uh, culturally and socially? Do you do you think that we're at a kind of a an evolutionary point where we may go in another direction it's a massive question and it's um kind of a quicksand social quicksand um so into just to answer this question directly i think there is um um slow movement toward back toward and not backwards in time right but back to something that we forgot we still had and that's a set of virtues um, beginning with, you know, personal responsibility, um, you know, not shifting the blame onto someone else or some system or something else, but taking personal responsibility for your actions and um, finding a center in yourself between fear and desire. And all of the virtues were there in the past to try to help us to stay centered, to not be pulled too far by desire. And so that we become compulsive, as I have in, in my life many, many times or to become um, too controlled by fear, which can either make us very timid or can turn us into bullies. And bullying you know, manifestation of fear, from my experience. And, and it's when you put some fear into the bully, they usually run away and so on, <laughs> because there's nothing else there. But that, I think that, that centeredness, where I think it's a movement back, um, or if you like, a movement forward into a deeper understanding of what the virtues are. 
why are they, why were they there for so long? Um, are, are they worth preserving? Are they worth having? How how can they help me to be a more, more well-adjusted, centered, and productive person in this world? That I like people and people like me. How can I let this happen? How can I make this happen? The virtues and uh, the way forward. And the messages of great teachers like Jesus. Um, these are fantastic messages. 2,000 years, he said, love your enemies. We still can't do it 2,000 years later. That's how brilliant it was. That's mm-hmm. how groundbreaking and illuminating the thought is. What? Even them? I'm supposed to even love them? I can't. And he says, precisely. You have to be like a kid. A little kid, you have to be innocent. The kid is not judging that person and so on. The kid is walking up and saying something to them from their innocent heart. They might say, um, who are you? Or they might say, why do you have that red mark on your face? <laughs> why do you have that? And a kid will walk up innocently and ask you. They're not overcome by their ego, not overwhelmed by their fears and their desires. They're still innocent. This is that message of Jesus. Be like that. If you want to go there, be like that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, so if, if our way forward or back to the virtues, I'm wondering, you, you said that one of the best things or the best thing that happened to you was your solitary confinement, because that's really what shifted you. I feel like we may be bringing something, uh, in our consciousness towards us that is at least metaphorically a solitary confinement, some sort of condition that might cause us to shift and, and move to back to the virtues and and move to this place where um, we take personal responsibility and find our center. Uh, do you think we can do it without some sort of some sort of pseudo solitary confinement? I mean that metaphorically. I, I mean it like some sort of, you know, some sort of condition that kind of puts our our soul against the wall. I think we already had it with COVID. Yeah, um, you know, it was a time of tragedy and transformation. All mm-hmm. of us lost people during COVID. And nearly everyone lost somebody. Um, people were uh, got sick. Their jobs, their 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 career, their future, their life savings, and so on. It, it was a fundamental shift. It was a tragedy, a time of tragedy, but also a time of transformation. And you must know that when people who've reached out to you saying the time during COVID was the turning point in my life. I mm-hmm. now know what is important to me. It was a huge I awakening for me. A huge awakening. Yes. I awakened to so many things. And I, I wasn't, I, I, I didn't think I was that asleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's terrific. You don't know how asleep you are until you wake up. No, That's right. then it's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa! I, I didn't, I didn't, I see things so differently. Yeah. I think that the uh, movement toward, when I say movement toward the virtues, I'm not saying, hey, here's the list of rules and you've got to be like this. No, I the understand. Virtues, you know what I mean. It's right. much I more completely get it. That. Yes, much more nuanced and elastic. There's a shortcut. I think what happens is that culture shapes this, uh, the acceptance of this. And our culture has expressed itself in uh, our modern, let's say, Western culture, if we just focus on that for the moment. Modern Western culture has, has expressed itself in all sorts of um, excesses. This way, this way. The 80s, for instance, is, if you like, the opposite of, um, you know, the, the time now, in a sense. It, greed is good. I don't think you can even say that today and make any sense out of it. But in the 1980s, it made perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. And the culture reflected it. So it was pushed to an extreme that way, pushed to other extremes. You know, we've had decades of terrorism and all sorts of things. 
and the culture moves left, right, left, right, left, right, and eventually, and I think eventually we will be finding an, a culturally nuanced way as we go forward. I think that there will be um, movies and television and books and other things that are are less about the issue that that person is dealing with, and more about the issues that everyone is dealing with. Um, that used to be the benchmark for artists and for writers particularly. Can Is this universal? Can people relate to this everywhere? Or is it just your group who can relate to this? Well, that was thrown out with the canon for various reasons, and life goes on, and with the literary canon. But um, that, that movement back to a kind of universal thing where this is my story, but this is how it can be applied through you. This is how it's relevant to everybody. I think culture is going to do this. So it'll be expressed in cinema, in um, you know, TV programs, podcasts, uh, videos, and so forth. And I, I think we'll see the culture shaping itself as we go forward because we, we learn, all of us, by trial and error, about what is working well and what is not working well. <laughs> and sooner or later, culturally, those things that are not working so well fall away and the things that are working well uh, go forward. <laughs> okay, great. I have I have at least two more things I want to cover with you. And one is I want to kind of go back to unconditional faith. Um in your book you talk about faith, you define faith as freedom from fear. Yes. Yes. And so so unconditional faith I'm I'm assuming that is like no no matter what I am devoted. I think um it, you know, and firstly, uh, uh, the only thing that's unconditional, I think, is faith. And I, I don't really use the term unconditional faith because that's right. sort of suggesting, oh, okay. he's got conditional faith and, and he's got unconditional faith. Okay, so faith. faith itself has no yes. conditions. If you have faith, you have no conditions on that faith. I think so. Okay. I think it's the purity beyond okay. belief. Um, you know, we have belief, a belief system. You you believe this list of things. You are a Muslim. You believe this list of things. You're a Buddhist. You believe right. this list of things. You're a Judeo-Christian, whatever. Uh, that that's belief. You need to believe those things and say, "I believe," to become a member of that community, and so on. And there are people who are filled with belief and have very little faith. Yes, in my experience, yes. and yes. there are people who are filled with faith and have no belief. Yes, they don't belong to any religion, but their lives are lives of faith and expressed. What it comes down to is that the, the constant this simple formula: everything that happens to you. Whether good or not good is a test of faith. And so faith is that. It is the constant running through your life so that when uh, it, you have a calamity, if your faith is strong, when that calamity happens to you, you say, how can I be worthy of this? How can I, my faith is strong. How can I be worthy of this? Is your first question to yourself. I need to rise to this. I need to be worthy of this. How can I help? How can I be involved? The, um, if the lack of faith will plunge the person, and I know this from my personal experience, a lack of faith in myself, in my friends, my family, in, in, and so on, This in anything beyond this. My lack of faith is what plunged me into cataclysmic despair when I faced real hardships in my life. It, I became a junkie. I gave up. I threw it all away. I did not have any faith in myself and the others around me that I would survive it that it would pass and that I was strong enough to get through it and so on. Faith is what gives you this. And how do you get that? There's a kind of formula and it's the same in, in life, in this material world, and it's the same thing in the spiritual. There's affinity, 
people meet and they have an affinity. Oh, gee, you like video games. So do I. What? What's your score on this? Oh, I know I beat that last time. There's an affinity, whatever it is. And might be racing cars. I don't know, but they have an affinity. That can turn into affection. And affection is the first cousin of love. And love is the first cousin of trust. When there's enough love over a, per- a period of time, people may love each other deeply and yet still have a jealousy thing inside or whatever and not 100% trust the other person. Over time, enough love and enough true love will build trust. And trust is critically important, fabulous thing. But beyond trust is faith. You can trust that your partner is not going to betray you. Um, you know, but um, it's a different thing when you have, have faith. Faith is someone could bring you a film of your partner doing something and you grab them by the ear and drag them down to the police station and say, I want this person arrested for making a false declaration because this could not happen. My faith is I know this cannot happen. Yeah. Beyond, oh, well, I trust the person, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe it did happen. Faith is unshakable and unconditional, yes. and, and it's very hard to get there. But once you get there, it gives you that freedom from fear. And, it, and it's a responsibility. Rising, you have prosperity. How are you going to deal with that? Is it going to, you know, warp your mind? Are you going to become, you know, a, a, a nasty person as a result of it? Or is it? Or is your faith strong enough to say, am I worthy of this opportunity that's been given to me, this prosperity? How can I do this in the most beneficial, positive way without thinking about your faith? Because your faith drives you to that perspective. Yeah, so you're, you're, you, if a, a good thing happens or what we call a bad thing or a hard thing happens, it's how can I be worthy of this? Yes. And, and I, I think that we don't ask that question, but we certainly <laughs> don't ask that question when a bad thing happens. <laughs> We're like, oh, poor me. How can I be worthy of this? And that, that really, I mean, there's so much power in that. I mean, I can, even, I can feel it. I can see it. If we did that, how can I be worthy of this and, challenge? It's like, whoa, yes. you know, yes. there is no victim. And the example that I've mentioned in the book is that when um, my parents passed away, I uh, took their ashes to India. And I know from, I know myself very well. At any other time before I, I had started to fill up the internal container of faith and start to fill it up and get some faith inside myself, faith in myself, faith in my friends, my family, faith in my work, faith in, in life and faith in the divine, whatever it is. Until that time, I know that if I'd lost my dad, and my mom in this in six months in the same six month period, I would have turned it. I would have become a drunkard. I would have started drinking. I would have self medicated with alcohol or something like this. I would have fallen apart and been useless to my family. Instead, I, I literally asked myself, "How can I be worthy of this? How, how can I do the right thing for the family, for my parents?" And my mother wanted ceremonies done with her ashes and so on. And I threw myself into the commitment and so on. And I, I never felt that despair that would have. And that, that sense of, of defeat or guilt or shame and all of that, those things are there, but they never uh, conquered me because the, uh, and I applied myself to it. And one of the few things I'm proud of in my life that I got did this for my parents in this way, filled with faith. And it, I never felt unhappy. And I, my mother is with me every day. Mm-hmm. I have, uh, I'll show you one time or whatever, but I have pictures of my parents and of my soulmate's parents who both passed away. Um, here on my, in my little sacred space, um, I light incense. I put flowers in front of it. I talk to them. I love them. I blow the conch. I tell them how much how grateful I am. Thank you for everything. And they smile on me every day, every day. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, the last thing I really wanted to ask you to do, and I'll give you the last word, 
But you had this chapter on called Affirmation, and you told the story mm-hmm. about the ant. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to tell that story, <laughs> because I think that people get so confused about God, send me a sign, and that the universe is making this sign happen for them. But the way you talk, you walk through that story of the ant, you you really turn the the idea of signs or affirmations in, into a, a really a very very empowering and very inspiring way. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Oh sure. Um, I went out to blow the conch on this pier that I used to go to a stone pier out in the, that thrusts itself out into the ocean, so that you're surrounded by the sea as you stand there and blow the conch and. Every now and then a big wave will come and, and douse you and it's fabulous. So standing on, under the sky, blowing the conch, very, very pleasant. I went out there to do it. And at the last moment, I, I looked down and I saw this ant um, where I would normally be standing. And it was going round and around and around in a circle. And as I got closer to look at it, I realized it was circling a piece of glass um, and that I would have put my foot directly on it. And as I looked and noticed it and picked up the piece of glass, the ant went away. And so on. And later, um, I'll leave that for the uh, for readers of the book. But the ant pops back in again, and so on. So you can ask yourself at this at this moment, um, the very spot where you would have put your foot and stood on a sharp piece of glass that you couldn't see. The ant could see it, but I couldn't see it, and so on. That um, is this an affirmation? Um, well, yes, but only in this sense. Would the ant have been going around this piece of glass if you were not there? Probably. It was something about the reflection of the glass. It was something about that spot. And the ant would do this anyway, whether you're there or not. If you're blowing the shell and you see two perfect shooting stars, one at the beginning and one at the end, there's no doubt in my mind that they would have been there whether I'm standing there blowing the shell or not. I have nothing to do with that. However, and so that would happen whether I'm there or not. The ant is going to do this whether I'm there or not. But to understand it as a material event that's happening whether you're there or not, but also understanding that you are there and you have the perception that's capable of perceiving this as an affirmation and knowing that both things, the material thing and the affirmation are both real and they don't cancel each other out and so to speak, but that it would have happened whether you're there or not. It's it's being in the right frame of mind, the right spiritual state and the right place at the right time to receive the affirmation. And that's not about you and the universe in a, a conversation, it's about you being in the right spiritual state to be there and to experience the affirmation. But it's not the universe saying, hi, Greg, I'm going to make stars right. fly across the sky for you. No, no, right. no, no, no. I know. I just loved it when you wrote that because I wrote, yes, yes, I completely agree. Because, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it would have I'm happened so anyway. And I have kind of a logical mind too. It's like it would have happened anyway. But yeah, where yeah. you are, in your awareness, it's because you're in the state of awareness that you're seeing it as having meaning or as being some sort of a sign. Um, and, and and there's a lot that got you to that place too. Because there's so many things that are happening in front of us that we don't notice because we're not awake. We're not aware. We're not seeing the stars. We're not seeing the ant. And we step on the glass because we didn't see the ant. But it's really about us being awake. Yes, it is. It's about us being in a state of mind where affirmations can be understood yeah. and perceived and experienced. And they're just little things. Are they signposts? Are they, you know, along the way showing, showing you how spiritual you're getting? No, they happen <laughs> to everybody all, all the, the time. time. And it's not, 
Yes, it's not not, not just you. Yeah. It's the natural <laughs> world. And when you interact with it, you, you'll literally hear nature responding to you. You'll respond to the nature even with a thought and the bird will um, respond. Nature's responding to us all the time. The spiritual is always there and we can always connect with it whenever we want to. Right. All we need to do is be humble enough. <laughs> right. I think I call it again, I call that Eden consciousness. It's our, our, our conscious of the uh, the Eden state where we are all connected with all that is out there. Um, so I want to give you uh, whatever you want to say. What What is your last message you want to share with anybody? And and then we'll close. Wow. Um, that's a really, really big one. And I know, I, we I can be here I, for another few hours if you want. <laughs> exactly. With a, with a, yeah, a long message for, for people. Um, I'd simply say for anyone who's listening out there, who I, you know, I think it's important to hear. It was very important for me in my life. Whenever I met a former addict, someone who'd been a heroin, because I was still using, and someone who was a heroin addict and who had who said, no, I gave it up. And I'd, I'd look at them and they were so fit and healthy. And I, I'd think, no, 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 you were never a junkie. And they go, yeah, man. And get another friend in and the friend would say, oh, he was wicked junkie, man. Oh, my God, this guy, day and night, man, he was off the chain. So you hit, you hit and think, what happened? And it says, I hit a turning point and I gave it up and I never look back and I don't miss it. I never think of it. And each time you think to yourself, this is impossible. You know what addiction is and you know what being a junkie is and what cold turkey is. You've been through it 20 times and you think this is the rest of your life. Most junkies think they're going to die with a hot shot or an injection. It's going to happen sooner or later. They, they, they know that they're playing a dice game with death. But then you meet people along the way who say, no, I was hardcore junkie. And I've never looked back. Well, I'm one of them. Each one of those people I met, when I reached that turning point, they were right with me saying, you can do this. You can do this. And it was so important for me. If I had not ever met anyone who had defeated heroin and was strong and, and healthy and happy, I don't, don't know that I ever could have got out of it in the way uh -huh. that I did. But I did get out of it uh, as they did. I never think about it. I would never go back. I feel heartbroken if I see someone taking heroin. Um, in a film or whatever, it's heartbreaking. It's uh, because here in Jamaica, I don't see it person, people doing it, thank God. But um, I see very strong, healthy people, and I love that. <laughs> I, I think for anyone out there, know that there are people who did it, know that they got through it. For me, it's 35, 40 years or something, I've been 35 years, never thought about it, never felt like it. You can do that too. It will happen for you. You just need to hang on until you hit that turning point. Don't lose it. Don't lose your life. Don't throw it away. Hang. Trust your friends if you have, still have any. Trust your family members if you haven't burned them, and so on. And and so on. <laughs> show some trust, but trust yourself. Have faith that you are way stronger than you know. I know that now. Mm -hmm. I know now that I always had the strength to give up heroin. I just didn't know it. And when I finally did, it was easy. I couldn't believe it that I never thought about it and went through the turkey, the everything, and, and never looked back. So that's the first thing. Anyone out there who's suffering with addiction, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's heroin, whether it's coke, crack cocaine, whatever it is, anyone who's listening to this, you are stronger than you know. And there are many of us who got through this and you can too. So that's the first message. The second one that I would say is in life, never give up. Never give up. It's... Um, I've, well, I, I can say this because I did. I was the give up guy. I would run away from commitment, run away from whatever was there trying to constrain me or that I didn't like. 
and so on. I was that person. I gave up and gave up and gave up. And every time I gave up, I threw myself into the pit and I had to crawl out of it again. So what I'm saying is never give up. So long as you're still here and you don't give up on yourself, you may still be leading a lifestyle that you're not happy with, but never give up on yourself. Don't give up because you can do it. We can all do this. All right. So number one, you will get out of this if you're addicted. Number two, whatever your problem in life, whatever your situation, never give up. Keep going. It will get better. This too shall pass. This too shall pass if you rise above. <laughs> so I'd awesome. say that to everybody, please. And stay positive. Stay happy. Enjoy. Get into your life. Make something. Create something. Do something. Go out. Have fun. Talk to people. Be kind. Listen to people. Exchange. Do a bit of service here and there. Volunteer. Do something. and. Enjoy your life because that's what it's for. <laughs> <laughs> and, and create a purpose for yourself. Of course. Of yes, course. You yeah. Make yourself strong within yourself and devote yourself to a, a worthwhile purpose that helps you and helps the world. Yeah, I think that we have no idea how strong we are. I mean, I think we have absolutely no idea just how strong we are and amazing we are. So. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I mean, I think I, I I think we could talk for a long time. You you have so much wisdom and such an interesting life. And I definitely recommend your books. And um I just really, really appreciate your your giving of yourself today. You you really gave so much inspiration to everyone who's listening. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that. You you do this and as a person, for anyone else out there, uh, let's say there's some young writers, there's some young artists who are going to go out on the road and so on, as I did years back when I bring out a book and you go on the road and you're, you're doing things like this and talking. Um, every time you do this, that, that you do it, um, the intention that you have in your mind, if it's to give and not what you can get, um, it's so rewarding. I came into this not knowing anything other than what can be uh, that we're having a conversation. And I've gained so much from it. And I'm so glad we had this talk. Thank you very, very much. Oh, gosh. I I, I feel so, I receive, I receive. <laughs> and now I've got to go out and give. And this podcast okay. is a gift. And so we're sort of say thank you, everyone, for their generous listening. And um, and thank you, Greg, for being on, on the Spiritual Forum. And I just wish you all the best. Thank you. God bless you. Keep you and everyone safe. Yes, yes. And I now close the spiritual forum. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about us, check out thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. We're a nonprofit corporation and depend solely on donations from people like you. If you find that you're benefiting from your listening, we encourage you to donate on our website, thespiritualforum.org. Our music is by Matt Nelson. Sound engineering is by Mark Jaschelski.